I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Gubby Gubby people of Southeast Queensland. I honour their continuing connection to land, sea and sky, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. And this is episode number 197, and on today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Charles Fisher, the author of The Eunuch, a darkly comic novel set in Babylon during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II. Told from the point of view of Nurgle, a eunuch slave scribe who keeps the secrets of the king's harem, the book is a tale of depravity and love in a time of imperial decline. Charles Fisher holds degrees from St. Olaf College. Harvard Divinity School, and the University of Washington. He lives in Seattle with his wife, Lisa, and teaches writing and humanities at Everett Community College in Washington, and The Eunuch is his first novel. And you can find Charles on Twitter, uh, at CFisher2, that's C-F-I-S-C-H-E-R, and then the number two. And you can find his novel novel at gabrohead.com. That's G-A-B-B-R-O-H-E-A-D.com forward slash the dash eunuch. And the two of us talk about his book. Uh, we talk about the journey that Charles had to writing this novel, which took about a, a decade, uh, and the research that went into it, the things that Charles learned from studying Mesopotamia and Babylonian history. And then we speak about Nurgle, the antagonist, and his struggle with masculinity and isolation and sublimating his sexual desires into art through writing. And then we speak about uh, the incel community and black pill philosophy and ideology and the importance of community and personal growth and expressing and exploring love in all of its forms and, and eventually finding love and connection and community. So it's a really interesting conversation uh, you know, about the book which prompts conversation about masculinity and sexuality and desire. So if you're interested in any and all of that, then this is going to be a conversation uh, worth listening to. Charles was, yeah, super fascinating and, and really generous with his time. And I sincerely appreciate him sending me a copy of his book. Uh, so I highly recommend reading it. And yeah, I hope you enjoy listening. This might be a good time to describe what sexual intercourse is so you can understand some of the things we're talking about. At very special times, they like to hold each other close. God made their bodies so they fit together in a wonderful way. At one of those special love times, the sperm from the man's body can go into the woman's body. And in spite of her piety, she sometimes desires the more solid comfort of her husband Pierre's cock. Charles, you and I can jump straight in, mate. And the way that I like to start is with three questions. The questions are, who are you? What do you do? And what are you really passionate about, mate? Well, I guess you know my name. My name is Charles Fisher. Um, I'm a teacher at a community college just north of Seattle, Washington. Um, uh, my, I have an academic background in philosophy, religion, and, uh, and literature. I was a longtime graduate student in my youth. Um, uh, my area of ex so-called expertise and what I teach at Everett Community College is the humanities. So I've spent a lot of time teaching Homer, uh, Sophocles, Shakespeare, uh, the modern European novel. I also teach writing classes there. I, I'm actually quite passionate about teaching. Um, it's been, it's, I've been fortunate enough to kind of uh, uh, to work in my calling, so to speak. I see teaching as a vocation and I'm very very excited about that and happy uh, to do it. I've been teaching for about 25 years. Um, I'm also passionate about uh, literature, um, novels, fiction, drama, but also poetry. I'm not a poet, but I, I, I have a couple of really good friends who are poets. Um, I'm a fan of poetry. I like to read a lot of poetry. Um, I, since I live in the, I'm lucky enough to live in the Pacific Northwest where we're surrounded between two mountain ranges. So I spent a lot of time hiking and skiing and mountain biking. I like, I like the outdoors quite a bit. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Thank you so much for sharing and, and for offering um, some rich context to, to your life as well as a, as a guest on the podcast. That's really lovely. And, um, you know, what I want to speak to you about today, I suppose, is the book, uh, the book that you've released, the novel, uh, The Eunuch. And I was curious 
just to get a little bit of context of like where that came from, what led to you writing this particular novel? That's a really good question. Uh, um, when I was in my early 30s, I was, I was a latecomer to fiction and writing. I didn't really realize that I wanted to write uh, until I was about 30 years old. Um, and that the inspiration uh, for that was in my own reading. There were certain books I read as a young man, uh, English comic novels, for example. Uh, when I would read them, I go, oh, my gosh, I want to do something like that. And I can name two of those novels right now. Declining Fall by Elon Waugh and then Money by Martin Amos. Uh, Waugh was a writer in the early part of the 20th century. He's kind of a high modernist. He uh, published Declining Fall in 1928. But Martin Amos is more, is, he's not quite a contemporary of mine. He's about 10 years older than me, maybe 15 years older than me. He just passed away uh, in the last year. And he's a, uh, one of the giants of the English comic novel. And when I read these books, I said, oh, my God, I want to do that. Little did I know that uh, it would take, it, it would be a long apprenticeship in learning how to write, and then in particular, learning how to write a novel. Um, uh, writing is an art, a craft, like anything else. It takes a long time and a lot of practice to get pretty good at it. I would say it took me about 10 years to become a decent writing, writer. And then I, and that's about around the time I started my novel. And then it took another 10 years to write, um, in part because, uh, I didn't know how to write a novel. Writing a novel is a it's a huge enterprise, and you you go into it kind of blind, naive, and full of delusions. Um, as far as uh, in regards to my subject matter, I was a graduate student um, in the 1990s at Harvard Divinity School, and a good friend of mine was doing a PhD in Assyriology, which was uh, which is the study of uh, the ancient languages and culture of Mesopotamia, and it was through her. Her name is Jenny Meyer that I, became, I was introduced to Babylon and the world of uh, 7th century BCE, um, you know, Mesopotamian culture. And so I had that kind of, I had that idea in the back of my, in the back of my mind that this, this was an interesting world. And, and of course, the word Babylon uh, meant so much to me coming from my own kind of, you know, culturally Midwest Christian background, Babylon as a symbol of of empire, of an empire in decline with its military might and its power and its decadent. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good analog for 21st century America. So there was a lot of things going on with that topic. Yeah, thanks so much for speaking to that. And I, I guess like, I'm curious, why, why a novel? Why a historical fiction? Like, what was it that, about that genre and about that format that you thought this would be the, the, the best way or an avenue for expressing the thing that you were experiencing? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I didn't set out to write a historical novel. When I first started writing, I was writing about myself, right? And, and just thinking about it makes me kind of nauseous. Um, you know, uh, you know, because I, I had no real story. I spent most of my life in school living in one room apartments with, you know, a hot plate and a bathroom down the hall. You know, uh, the boarding house that I lived in in Cambridge, Massachusetts was like 20 bucks a month. Right. And, and I was making about, you know, it was $20 a week. And I was making probably about $50 a week at the time uh, as a student worker for Harvard University. And so it was a it was a it was a poor existence and a lonely existence. And when I was trying to write directly about it, it just it just sounded self-pitying and narcissistic. And it really wasn't until I found this kind of analog, this kind of alternative reality, which turned out to be the historical era of Babylon, where then I could kind of write about myself and my situation, but I could do it kind of slant, right? So I assumed the, the, the mask of the eunuch or uh, took on the role of my narrator, Nurgle, and, and, and try to reimagine what a life would be like and... Um, uh, you know, 6th century BC ba Babylon, uh, where I placed the book. And then once I did that, it, it just kind of opened up. The writing opened up. I found the freedom because I wasn't really writing directly about myself. I could write about, I could project my psychological situation, my emotional situation, certain even biographical facts onto my uh, eunuch slave scribe narrator in Babylon. But it wasn't, it wasn't a direct process. And that, and that gave me a tremendous amount of freedom because then I could, I could write about more than just my own biography which was kind of narrow and, and frankly uneventful and boring mm -hmm. and what was your uh biggest learning about yourself from going through that process of writing from uh Nargle, like the, the the place of like the unit what did you learn about yourself through that process 
Oh, that's a good question. I have to think about that. Um, I learned a lot about myself as a writer and dare I even say artist. Um, when people ask me about becoming a writer, I always say dream big, you know, swing for the fences. Uh, you don't know what you're capable of until you try to do it. And I was certainly ambitious as a writer when I took on a historical novel uh, and placing it in Babylon. Um, uh, and I, I wasn't sure I could do it, but through hard work and perseverance, you know, and dedication, um, I accomplished more or less what I set out to do. And I, I guess that was a personal lesson that I, I did something more than I thought I could do. Um, and um, there's satisfaction in that, you know, regardless of how much attention the book gets or how many, how many readers I get, um, I, I was able to do something that was difficult, you know, complete a work that uh, was ambitious and was challenging and difficult. I guess I learned how to work hard. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. I, I appreciate the element of like perseverance and achievement and accomplishment and satisfaction that comes with that. What I guess I'm also curious about is like, did you, did you do any like, was it a, was it a cathartic experience for you? Was there like an emotional process that you went through re because, you know, like you said, it, it was 10 years that you took to learn to write and then another 10 years to actually complete the novel. So it's like at least two decades of, you know, reflecting on your period of time of your life that you're essentially writing about through the novel. And I'm curious, was there any like cathartic emotional processing that you went through as you kind of put pen to paper about this story and it being reflective of some of your own, you know, lived experiences in that kind of analogous way? I like that term catharsis. Usually catharsis kind of comes at the end of a work, right? It's a, it's a term from Aristotle's poetics, right? And and it was part of his theory of tragedy. We, we, we like to see sad stories enacted on the stage or the page to give us some sort of emotional release. But yet there was a certain kind of psychological and emotional release in the writing of the novel. And I think a lot of it has to do with finding a means of self-expression, right? And that, you know, we go through life and uh, the people that get to know us, our colleagues at work, our, our, our families, you know, brothers, sisters, siblings, parents, uh, often they only know a part of us, right? It's, it's very difficult to kind of express um, our full complexity, emotionally, psychologically, right? I mean, I mean, human beings, we're just too nuanced and too mysterious, right? To really share all with those that we're close with and those that we, that we associate with that work. And one of the great things about art, and in particular, in particular fiction, you can express that psychological and emotional complexity in your prose, in your characters, in your story. You know, I mean, my character, Nurgle, is not me. I don't live in Babylon. Yet on the other hand, every word came from me, right? Every idea was mine, every theme I had to construct. And so who I am is very much expressed in that uh, fictional work. Right, um, in in a way that you could never do in real life. It would just be too exhausting for other people, and I, and and that's tremendously cathartic. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, mate. I I appreciate you you delving into that a little bit. And you know, we've kind of spoken around the theme and the the topics of the book a little bit. But I was wondering if you could give like a kind of high level, broad strokes dot points of what the book is about, so that because we're going to have a conversation about some of the themes in there so that the listeners have a bit of context for what we're about to speak about. Yeah, I would describe the eunuch as an erotic tragedy. Uh, the premise of the novel is that uh, uh, the story is uh, a translation, actually a forged translation, of a set of cuneiform tablets that were unearthed during the uh, American invasion of Bag Baghdad in March of 2003. So there are translation of uh, tablets that are known as the Babylonian Chronicles, which record the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II. And Nebuchadnezzar is uh, a famous Neo-Babylonian king, best known for his invasion of Judah, the kingdom of Judah in 589 BCE, where he uh, raised uh, the city, uh, or rather sacked the city, uh, destroyed the temple, and then um, deported uh, uh, a large percentage of the Jewish population to Babylon. 
uh, he's a character in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, for example. So, um, uh, and, and anyway, the, the eunuch tells the story of uh, the Babylonian invasion of, of Judah, all the events that led up to that war from the perspective of a eunuch slave scribe. He's the uh, harem scribe of Nebuchadnezzar's harem. So he lives in this seregulo surrounded by 303 young women who are the king's um, uh, haremites. Uh, they're essentially sex trafficked slaves. And so he spends his days hanging out with them listening to their stories uh and um you know and uh he's and then he's he's about to record uh the events behind the scenes uh that led up to this war he's a he's the king's body man as well uh, becomes a close confidant of the king and he knows the real story so to speak behind the official record mm, thanks for giving that uh very brief uh synopsis i suppose um for, for those that don't know what is a eunuch well, uh, the, the eunuch is, uh, he was essentially, he was born in Nineveh as a young, you know, uh, and, and then when he was born in Nineveh in the uh, early 600s BCE, and that city was uh, invaded by Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolazar, um, and uh, he, you know, sacked the city and enslaved a lot of his inhabitants. And my character was one of those enslaved inhabitants. He was taken as a prisoner around the age of 12. And then he was made a eunuch by the king's army and then enslaved in the harem. And to be a eunuch, he was essentially castrated uh, uh, by an army uh, lieutenant and then um, uh, enslaved in the king's harem. So, and, he, and that happened to him, you know, when he was on the cusp of adolescence, kind of the twilight between uh, childhood and adolescence. And so he kind of remains in this in-between state sexually. He's neither, I mean, he's, uh, I would say that the eunuch is heterosexual, you know, he's attracted to women, but he doesn't have the means to satisfy or fulfill that attraction because his, because what he calls his organs of regeneration have been they've been extirpated expunged right removed from his physical body thank you for yeah thank you for defining a eunuch as well because uh i've just been mindful of some listeners who may have not heard that uh terminology before um so yeah castration um is the the uh, relevant thing that you need to know uh, so that brings me to a, to a question then man that and um, that i hope uh to to hear you speak into a bit was like you know, so you're delving into this this you know, life of a harem eunuch, this heterosexual man who's you know, spending time with, I think you said, um, was it 303 women? Yes, yeah, yeah, basically 303 young women between the ages of, you know, and this is terrible and it's very exploitative. They're between the ages of like 12 and, you know, you know, 25. They've been taken, they've been taken in raids and wars from their towns and villages and witnessed their uh, family murdered and they themselves have been impressed into this harem in a, essentially a sex trafficking situation. So he's a slave amongst other slaves. Uh, uh, but because he's been neutered, so to speak, by the king, he, he presents no romantic or sexual threat. And so they pretty much live their lives around him as if he's not even there. He's kind of an invisible watcher of the kings. How do you think that portrayal then challenges or expands like our understanding of contemporary masculinity and male sexuality? I mean, I think the, the parallels are kind of ob uh, obvious. I mean, I think, I think, you know, um, you know, one way to think about sexuality, and, and I think this was first formulated by the French novelist uh, um, uh, Michel Welbeck. Um, he's kind of the bad boy of French letters. And around the turn of the century, he wrote a book called The Elementary Particles. And he's he was the first guy to kind of apply neoliberal economic theory to uh, sexual relationships. And basically, you can you can uh, divide the world into the haves and the have nots. There are some people who can uh, gratify their sexual desires uh, uh, often and frequently have many partners and become quite su successful in the sexual marketplace. Right there. So there's the rich uh, uh, in the in the sexual marketplace, but then there are also the paupers, the poor that will go through their life and never get anything at all, right? Um, 
And so it's the kind of the, the have and have nots. It works in the economic sphere, right? I don't know about Australia, but in um, America, there's a tremendous amount of economic inequality, right? Um, uh, and Welbeck was the first one to kind of point out where there's a certain thing about sexual inequality as well. And it's more complex than that, of course, obviously. But I was kind of interested uh, about that idea. When I read that novel, it struck me that I was I was kind of interested in the same theme. And so Nurgle is a certain, he's a sexual have not, and he's surrounded, right, by all, all the all these young, beautiful women, women who completely ignore him, they're half-dressed. And so he has to kind of deal with his own desire and his own kind of invisibility. And, and I must point out that uh, Eunuch uh, is a comic novel, right? I aspired to write a comic novel, a dark comedy. So I wanted to exploit that kind of thwarted desire for its comic potential. And then, of course, you've got his master, right, uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who's considered not only a god, but a sexual god. And he's a sexual have. He can have as much, uh, he has as much access to sex as he wants. And of course, at, at, uh, during the time of my story, he's in late middle age and he's basically fucked out, to borrow a phrase from Martin Amos. He's like an aged rock star who's had everything, tried every conceivable possible uh, sexual uh, act and experience, and he's bored and exhausted. And uh, all he wants is love, but he doesn't know how to have it. So I thought there'd be some interesting and dramatic tension in having Nurgle, the guy who has nothing, and then Nebuchadnezzar, a fellow who's had everything and is now kind of bored and and really kind of, you know, in is essentially impotent, right, in his late middle age, and kind of playing around with those ideas, that relationship. That juxtaposition is really interesting. And um, I'm, I'm curious if you're able to expand on, like, uh how you explored that impact of castration on Nurgle's like sexual identity and his desires and you know not necessarily being able to act them out you were kind of referring to him having to navigate them himself so what did that look like for him well you know i mean the thing is you know i conceived and wrote the novel in the early 21st century and the culture's kind of caught up with me right you could look at the, you could look at the eunuch as the first incel novel it's not the first incel novel but I came upon that uh, uh, that topic before the term was ever really invented, right? So Nurgle, right, he's been blackpilled. Have you heard of that term? I have, yes, I'm familiar. Yeah, right. So Nurgle, when it comes to his own sexual reality, he's blackpilled. He knows that he's never going to ever get what he wants, right? Uh, but he, however, he still dreams. And he does fall in love with one of the harem girls. Her name is Suduri, and she's also the alpha lover of the king. And so the novel is really about this kind of sexual triangle. So he desires, and he's and he's capable of love, uh, actually, but he's not capable of the kind of uh, kind of you know direct physical consummation of that love that that could be had in intercourse or the the sexual act. Um. So there's that. Yeah. So so he's aware that uh, his that he lives a life of thwarted desire. Um, and uh, Siduri is the uh, unobtainable woman. That's an old poetic trope, right? Desire is something he cannot have. Um, and 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 he's in love with her. It's not just physical loss. Although, of course, there's that, there is passion there, but he is he's in love with her in a, in a sense, in a literary sense, like a Romeo and Juliet or an Anthony and Cleopatra. It's psychological and emotional. It's not just... It's not just physical desire, although there's that there. And so I was interested in exploring that relationship to wanting something that you can't have. Um, and of course, he's he's always constantly compensating for that for that lack, right? And so much of it, he you know he's a bit of an intellectual. He's a scribe, right? He considers himself a literary person, right? Uh, a man of letters or a, a eunuch of letters. Right. And so there's a certain kind of snobbery and, and kind of intellectual su superiority that he has towards uh, the what I call the intact beards of Babylon. Right. Um, and, and, and this is something I noticed in graduate school. I mean, most of the academics that I knew, we were all kind of, you know, relatively, you know, marginal social beings. Right. They're kind of the A plus nerd students in high school. Right. And um, so much of the kind of intellectual flexing that goes on in the university, uh, at least to my mind, uh, is a kind of consolation or a compensation for uh, a certain amount of social and romantic uh, inadequacy. I wanted that to come, that kind of resentment, that kind of overcompensation, that had to come through in his worldview 
if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely, man. And, and you know, when I think of uh, clients that I work with who are wanting to express their desires, explore their sexuality, and they don't maybe have a partner or they have really difficulty dating, one of the things that we explore together is what I'll call channeling that sexual urge or that sexual desire or that eroticism into something else. And one of the things that we explore is writing, you know, creative writing. Uh, if a guy's you know, got a business, then one of the things I'll talk to him about is like, how can you channel that creative, you know, uh, energy or that sexual energy into your, your business? Or if he's more into physical fitness, then I'll talk to him about like channeling it into going to the gym or going for a run. But there's this, uh, what we might call transmutation, sublimation of desire of that sexual energy into a different endeavor. And um, yeah, I was curious to like kind of pick up on a little bit of that theme in the Unix actions around around writing and, and how you kind of portrayed it. Yeah, but you just basically described uh, Sigmund Freud's theory of culture, that culture uh, to some extent is a sublimation of sexual desire, right? Well, and aggression as well. I mean, when you when you when you look at those two basic instincts, you know, aggression and sexual desire, those are the things that you know parents have. They have to socialize their children around those two impulses, right? Uh, you know, we you, we live in a world, and you know, and and thankfully so that you cannot just act and act on any, any every aggressive impulse or act on every sexual impulse, right? Those things have to be have to be controlled, and so there's a certain amount of what Freud called repression, uh, 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 but you know, but I prefer your term sublimation, right, uh, into something positive, right? And so all that energy, right, you know, has to be put to use, and why why not make it positive and productive? And then, of course, you and this is probably part of your therapy. If you do that, you'll find yourself kind of growing and maturing as a human being and becoming a more attractive partner, romantic partner, right? Because you've you've actualized uh, a certain part of your yourself, and that makes you attractive to other people. And something that I thought was, you know, interesting, and what I was like working with as I was going through, you know, the Unix kind of lived experience um, through the pages was like something that I do with my clients is decenter their genitals, right? Like I'll, I'll explore pleasure with them in a way that isn't phallocentric, right? In a, in a way that doesn't necessarily have to involve genital stimulation. So what other parts of their body do they experience pleasure and how else can they explore pleasure that doesn't involve genital touch? And, you know, what something that I was um, you know, wanting uh, to do with the, the eunuch is like coach him, right? Offer some coaching around like him exploring his pleasure and his sexual stimulation. And like, even there's, I mean, this is getting a little bit into like the sexological research area right now, but like there is, uh, there is evidence and anecdotes about men who you know, have lost sensation either through an accident or through uh, a, you know, an injury to their spine, lost sensation in their genitals, can't get erections, uh, you know, don't don't feel anything from the waist down, but are able to like pursue pleasure and have orgasmic experiences and and really explore their eroticism by stimulating other parts of their body like their hands and their nipples and their face and and so I was like really interested to to you know see how the eunuch like maybe didn't do that or like had difficulty doing that. Yeah, dude, that your advice all sounds very sane and healthy, right? Well, my character <laughs> neither sane nor healthy. Mm -hmm. And so he has basically, he's got a couple of different ways of channeling uh, 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 desire and achieving pleasure. And one of them is through food, right? And so one of the kind of themes of the novel is that he, is that he satisfies a lot of his sexual desire through eating and food. He's a kind of a gourmand, right? And, and in this sense, I was kind of parroting the foodie culture that has kind of exploded in America and around the world in the last generation or so, particularly in the last half generation, Right. Uh, uh, we've, we've all become so much more sophisticated about food in our palate, right? And that's, I would say, probably generally a really good thing, right? But in the Unix case, it's all compensation and consolation. So he, he, most of his stuff is, 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 is directed towards his intellectual activity, uh, his kind of, his kind of critical attitude towards, his, towards Babylon it's, and its politics, um, and, uh, and, and then towards his food, right? So, so yeah, he's definitely you call it dysfunctional. He's not a, he's a dysfunctional uh, character. Sure, sure. Quite maladaptive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and probably rightly so, yeah. 
Yeah, he's fucked up, and that's and that I think that's because I mean literature. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to read about a functional, you know, happy character. Right? Uh, I mean, I want to be that person in my life. But when it comes to fiction, uh, uh, as Martin Amos says, happiness doesn't really quite swing on the page. Right. So much of the novel is about thwarted desire, whether it's political, economic, uh, social status or sexual. Right. I mean, that, that that's what where the drama is. And so I, so I took a, a kind of a conventional route there. But all your points are really well taken. You know, uh, we don't want to be Nurgle the eunuch in our own lives. And, and yes, I think that I think it's a great thing to kind of decenter the phallus, so to speak, uh, that genital pleasure is not everything, particularly as you get older. Right. Um, and you have to you know, accept a certain uh, amount of decline. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a few um, gentlemen on my podcast who are post prostate surgery, for example. And that was one of the biggest takeaways from their experience was to, to learn how to, how to be sexual and explore pleasure in diverse ways. Right. And, and as a man, I would, I would imagine there's a certain amount of shame around not being able to kind of perform the sexual act like you used to do when you're in your twenties and thirties. Right. Uh, you, know, you might, you know, in, in a sense you feel, you feel on some spiritual or psychological uh, uh, level, a eunuch, uh, emasculated, right? And of course, there's so much shame in our culture around that. Yeah, very much so. And, and it's interesting you use the food analogy there, um, well, like the food, the experience of eating food, because uh, there's an analogy that's used in the sex education, sex coaching space, which is like a lot of people, uh, the sex that they're having or the sexual experiences they have are like just eating junk food. It's like fast, quick and easy. It's not very fulfilling, but you know, interestingly, like the way that the eunuch explores his pleasure through the food that he eats is like, again, analogous to that specific analogy in the sex coaching space, which is this encouragement for people to you know have these beautiful meals and these dishes, which, you know, they're able to savor and, and explore their taste buds and, and, and explore new tastes. And they have to put a bit of effort in. It isn't just this quick and easy thing that you get from McDonald's. And so I found that quite interesting as well, that there was a, um, that food element just really struck a chord to me because of that analogy is so prevalent in this space. Yeah. I mean, the, your fast food examples is really the ultimate emblem of kind of our late capitalist consumer culture where there's, where, where, where we are, being enticed from every direction to consume junk, whether it's junk food or uh, junk art or junk television, junk movies, uh, pornography, uh, video games, right? All these, all, all these uh, quick and easy fixes, right? For the human situation that may satisfy uh, us immediately, but uh, they have long-term consequences, consequences on our physical and uh, and certainly our spiritual health, right? It's about creating meaning, right? And junk, there's no meaning in a, a junk in junk food or just masturbating to pornography or, right? Or or maybe being promiscuous on a sexual app, right? Um, if you're you're fortunate enough to be able to be promiscuous on a sexual app, right? From what I've heard, you know, people find that eventually, you know, exhausting and empty, an empty exercise. Right. The, the, the term intentionality comes to my mind, right? Because there's not a lot of intentionality if you just jump on Pornhub and watch the first thing that pops up, or there's not a lot of intentionality if you go through the drive-through of McDonald's and, and purchase a you know a Happy Meal. What do you mean by intentionality? I like your term. So if I juxtapose this to what I would say, is there is intentionality is like cooking a meal at home, right? Going out and purchasing the ingredients and reading the recipe and trying to you know specifically find the measurements. You know, uh, I have to when I'm cooking, if I'm doing measurements, I've got to find the the spoons right for a tablespoon a teaspoon like there's i'm going through the process of like i'm creating something really specifically intentionally for me to enjoy for me to consume but if i just drive down to mcdonald's and just go through the motions of just like swiping my card and getting the first thing that comes to me like it, there's not a lot of for me intention behind that it's just like oh, i'm just satiating you know my hunger yeah you might as well be a beast at a trough right eating you know uh the corn that the uh you're the farmer has given you. It's something bestial about that, right? And also, your description of cooking a meal, there's also a tremendous amount of engagement in that, right? Definitely. You, you, you have an idea. You look up a recipe. Maybe you watch a, a, a cooking lesson on YouTube, and it's like, cool, I want to do that. It's also a skill, right? Learning how to cook and, and learning how to cook well enough, right? You learn how to do that. You slow down. Yeah, I think there's a tremendous amount. I mean, I cook most of my meals and there's just a tremendous amount of pleasure in that.
I mean, I'm not a, occasionally, I'll, you know, I'm not a, I'm not above grabbing a Big Mac once in a while, but that's always kind of a guilty experience. And uh, like wrapped up in that is so much like, and here's where we can bring it back into some, some broader discussion, but wrapped up in those two experiences is a lot of like, you know, uh, socioeconomic status as well. Like it, co it costs time and money to be able to cook something at home, to be able to like spend the time creating a meal, buying the specific ingredients if you've got to do something a bit more elaborate. It's usually much more cost-effective to just drive through uh, and, and purchase a meal from. Very middle class, right? Very bourgeois, you know, it's our class that can do that, right? It has the opportunity to do that. You know, I work at a community college and most of my students are, you know, lower middle class, working class students, first generation students. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I live in this kind of expensive urban city um, fortunate enough to be born in the middle class, and, and you know, and I married a woman who's more successful than I am. <laughs> so uh, otherwise, I probably would have slipped a couple of notches in my own uh, uh, class uh, status. And 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 they're and they're very much part of that world where they they spend a lot of their time in their cars commuting, right? Fast food is part of that larger um, quick and easy culture, right? And uh, there's, you know, there's also there's, there's a tremendous amount of health problems because of that. Yeah, and I think that's a, a bit of a, a tangential conversation that we might not necessarily need to go into right now. No, we don't have to. I want to dial it back into to some themes around the book. So what I was quite curious around was like the the exploration of sexual practices from that like from a different era, right? So as you were, uh, so I'm curious, like as you were researching and writing for this book, and and because we don't like we don't have I mean the it's not as common, let's say, there's definitely sex trafficking, there's definitely sexual kind of slaves in, in our society today, but like the idea of a harem and the sexual practices that go along with that, and you speak about some other things in the book as well, like quite comedically about some other sexual practices. But I was curious, like, was there uh, like an element of research that had to be undertaken to like figure out what it's like to, to, to have sex in these, you know, in this era and in this this way and and how that's different or similar and if you notice any differences and similarities between sex practices during that time that era and and modern day sex practices yeah there was a very good book when i when i was researching the novel i put together kind of the bibliography on mesopotamia and unfortunately i don't i don't i don't read french or german so i was confined just to uh, resources in english but there's still a tremendous amount of uh, written work on this culture in this period of history and there's a very good book about uh, eros and eroticism in mesopotamian culture um and i read that very carefully and i also spent a lot of time reading the literature uh of mesopotamia you know, Assyria, Babylon, Sumer, and there's a tremendous amount of love poetry, right? Um, and of course, uh, in their religion, one of the, the major gods of their pantheon is the goddess of love, Ishtar, right? Uh, she, she's a version of the Egyptian goddess Isis or Aphrodite uh, in uh, the Greek Olympic pantheon or and Venus, right? So they were very powerful gods. And the religion of Babylon was a fertility religion. Every year, the king would have to have a, a, a would have there would be a, a New Year's ritual where he'd have to publicly copulate with a sacred prostitute. Sacred prostitution was a big part of uh, Babylonian religion, and uh, so you know, sex, sex was all over the culture uh, then. And they you know did everything that we did basically as far as the, the physical act uh, is concerned. Um. So. Um, I, I did rely a tremendous amount on the literary and historical sources. And then uh, and then when there were gaps, I just kind of made it up, you know, and try to make it sound plausible. I do believe in a certain universal human nature, right? Uh, I don't think that human nature has changed that much. Uh, particularly when you read the love poetry of this uh, from this area. Oh, I recognize that, right? All those all the themes are there. In the way when you were reading this, did you interpret it as the Mesopotamian culture being more permissible and more uh, accepting and tolerating of, of diverse sexual practices. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it, it's not a, a Judeo-Christian uh, culture, right? Particularly the Christian culture. You know, after Saint Paul, there's so much there was so much guilt and condemnation around the sexual act. You know, uh, Paul is famous for saying it's better better to marry than burn, right? Um, and uh, and you think of you know some of the early the, the early church fathers of Christianity, Augustine, Oregon, right? 
there uh, there were there's a, there's a whole aesthetic movement about the de denial of bodily pleasure and um, uh, uh, original sin being associated with sexuality, right? Um, and, and there's none of that in this culture. So there's there's not that same kind of guilt or shame around it. It uh, uh, it was basically about power. Those who can do, and, and a lot of that has to do with how attractive you are, you know, how much status you have within the culture, power, money, looks, all those things. Uh, they still they still apply universally. If you're fortunate enough to be born uh, with a you know uh, you know a, you know physically you know if you're six three as a guy and you're handsome and you've got money right you know and you've got a relatively decent personality right you should be able to be relatively successful romantically. I think that is always true. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, like there's there's some research uh, that and again. A lot of the research, if we get sexological here, is self-reported, right? And we know that men are notoriously bad at self-reporting about their sexual uh, history. Um, a lot of a lot of it's firstly retrospective, and so we're relying on memory. What do men tend to do? They tend to over-report their number of partners, for example, and um, and and because there's uh, social, uh, you know there's a social stigma about not having a lot of sexual partners for a lot of guys. And then on the flip side of things, when we're asking men about the amount of times that they masturbate or the amount of times that they watch porn, they tend to under report those instances again, because there's social stigma around watching porn and it being bad and masturbating being a bit of a thing that only loses through. So there's, there's social narratives that come into play when we look at the way that we research male sexuality and the same thing is true for female sexuality women tend to under report the amount of sexual partners that they've had again because of the social stigma associated with women having a lot of sexual partners um and and vice versa so um so it's interesting that you know that's that's a caveat but like the research that i want to reference here is like there's some uh research that suggests that the men that have the most amount of sexual partners come from the highest and lowest quintiles of uh wealth with regards to like socioeconomic status and so you know, it's that so so yes there's like this phenomenon of like status and prestige and wealth and and you know your your place in society correlating with some um you know romantic success and for some reason there's also the opposite being true where there's this low socioeconomic status phenomenon of a lot of these you know men having a lot of sexual partners or a lot of romantic partners they're having sex all the time right Right, it's the middle classes that are left out of the gold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, yes, yeah, so I thought I thought that's quite interesting. I, I always like try and bring that up to add a bit of nuance because you're you're right, and 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 it's also like, yeah, it's not a it's not a you know either or. It's an and situation. It's like and this is also happening. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, listening to your conversation about uh, men uh, over and under reporting, basically you've got the dynamic of being a winner and a loser, right? And winners have lots of sexual partners. Losers spend their time on the internet looking at uh, uh, videos, right? Yeah, that's often how it's framed. Yep. Yep, and you want to avoid falling into the loser category. Um, yeah, one thing about my novel, Nurgle. Nurgle, uh, it's tricky when you write a first-person novel. I mean, I wanted Nurgle to be as honest as he could about his life, right? Uh, uh, one way to look at the eunuch, it is a confession after all. And, and 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 confessions are only as good at, uh, to the degree that you confess everything. Uh, that being said, all first-person narratives involve a certain amount of self-delusion, cognitive bias, what we call cognitive bias, where you're either going to over or under-report uh, uh, the events of your life, right? And so, but so you had a, so so one of the challenges as a writer was to be able to appear as honest as possible that my narrator Nurgle would be as honest as possible about this is how I feel you know in the harem looking at all these beautiful women and I I lust after this one and this one bores me this one is great so there's this illusion of full confession and total honesty but yet at the same time right he's a human being and there's going to be a certain amount of self delusion and even deception about uh, telling his own story and so you you wanted to kind of uh, signal that to the reader. And that, that was part of the challenge of kind of creating, you know, that first person report. It had to be believable and unbelievable at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like the, the questioning of how, maybe not, not how reliable he is as a narrator with regards to like narrating his own life or, you know, confessing about his own life. But I, that tension point of like, you know, oh, is he, is he saying this because 
he's got this bias or he's got this prejudice or, you know, and, and that coming through with his, rather than just being a, a, a facts laid bare sort of situation. Yeah, I mean, he's, he, he admits that being cast, you know, that he was wounded when he was castrated. He said, when I was castrated, a poison entered my soul. He says that in the first line of the first chapter uh, of part two. The novel is divided roughly into three acts. And in act two, he, he, he narrates in one of the tablets uh, the story of his castration uh, at the hands of a Babylonian general. And the first line, he says, when I was castrated, a poison entered my soul, and it took years for it to course through my entire being, but course it did, and here I am. And so he admits to this wound, and the wound is kind of a, a, a bitterness, right? But he'd, be, he'd been deprived of something, and he had a, he'd been wounded, handicapped, and he had to kind of go through life with with that wound, and he's he's, 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 he's confessing to that. And I that how his castration can affect not only his being in the world, but how he tells his own story, how he looks at the world, how he evaluates it, judges it, et cetera. So he admits it, but you know, that's probably the only point in the novel where he acknowledges there's a certain amount of unreliability or bias in his point of view. I'm tying this back into something you said to me before, which was that this is, uh, you know, almost like the first incel novel, right? And and um, or even like the the concept of it can be uh, very much you know uh, equated to the the kind of black feel ideology. And you know, and, and so and I, I'm familiar with those spaces, and I do some some upskilling and training for educators about those spaces, and and have spoken to men who subscribe to like black feel ideology. And part of that is, as you've just described here, Nurgle kind of acknowledging that he's you know, kind of like being blackpilled, right? In a sense, and and so like there's an acknowledgement that that I, I hear from incels who I've spoken to, I self-identify as incels, who talk about like how, yeah, like it it started with a with a specific experience, and then it like really took over their life, and they they talk about this kind of progressive experience of of being blackpilled, of, of that poison kind of spreading through their body. Yeah, which it's rejection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for the most part, rejection, yeah, bullying. There's a whole, a whole, it's rejection at the end of the day, I suppose. Yeah, rejection, a bullying, a tremendous amount of social awkwardness. Uh, one of the things about this younger generation is they all, uh, they're, they're tremendously conscious of where they are in the social hierarchy, right? You know, if you go on a space like 4chan and you look at the green text confessions, some of, some will go, I'm a 310 manlet. Uh, you know, acknowledging that, you know, one to 10, I am three and I'm short. It's over with for me. And, you know, hence my rage and, you know, my, and then they, you know, the melancholy madness and the, and the suicidal ideation that, that accompanies all that. As this has kind of been a bit more of a mainstream phenomenon, it's entered into more mainstream discourse, you know, incels. Have you, do you have any insights or takeaways from going through this writing process and, and you know, exploring kind of the life of the eunuch? And how that relates to to incels? Is there anything that you you have as a takeaway that you might like to share? I don't know. I mean, I I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for the young men of today. You know, I mean, basically you're eighteen to you know you know forty or whatever that is. Uh, um, you know, and if I I don't have a son, but if I had a son, I'd say just get off the internet. You know, uh, you know, and they hate this kind of advice. By the way, they would just go. They would all. They would go. Okay, boomer. You know, get off the internet. Um, you know, um, and they're aware of all this advice, you know, hit the gym, take up a sport, you know, be in the world, learn an instrument, right? Um, you know, I mean, so much of the problem is that 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 isolation, just the hours and hours they spent alone and isolated on their computers, you know, exploring all these spaces, right? Um, and, um, and I think one of the things about being a man is that you're going to go through periods where, you know, you're not going to be attractive to women, right? You know, when I was in high school, for example, you know, at 15, I was 15 years old. I had braces. I had acne. Uh, I weighed 120 pounds. All the pretty girls were dating the football players and the hockey players and all that, you know? And so you, you already experienced that outsider status. But I didn't, I didn't, you know, get on the internet and join 4chan and start, you know, contemplating a mass shooting or something like that. And all those kind of paradigms are those blueprints are there now, 
on the kind of these darker corners of the web, right? You just kind of gutted it out and laughed about it with your pals. And at some point, you know, you would, you know, you'd put on the weight, you'd grow a few inches, you'd, you know, you'd get a little game. You didn't need a lot of game, but just a little game. And, you know, you'd get a girlfriend, right? In college or something, right? And, and, and then, you know, you'd be okay with it. And the problem with these kids today is that, it, it, you know, I, I, here's my old man, these kids today, the, the, the ideology is already out there, right? The whole kind of plan and map. And they, and they buy into that kind of isolation and rejection and failure really too soon, you know? Your life's not over when you're 18. It's, you know, it's hardly even started. Yeah, and something that I advise young men about is to find positive community. Because they like a lot of a lot of disenfranchised, disaffected young dudes, and I was that person myself. Craved community. I wanted, you know, a friendship group, or I wanted, um, you know, just men in my life who I could who I could speak with. Essential, essential, yes. Yeah, and so like, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I, I'd say it's it's a very human thing to to want. But as you rightly pointed out, a lot of these guys are jumping onto 4chan or Reddit or certain online communities right because they're seeking community the MGTOW, right those guys yeah right and they're so being exposed to like quite you know unhealthy misogynistic toxic you know ideologies and worldviews and so my advice to those young men is to like seek out community where there's you know there's support and there's accountability and there's people that are going to celebrate and uplift you and be uh in your corner so to speak and help you kind of like move forward with your life rather than the type of community which they might already be part of, which is going to bring them down and you know belittle them and tell them that they're never going to be successful and tell them that they're never going to have a partner. And, and, and so that's like an interesting thing that I wanted to, to you know, explore with you. It's like, um, where's, like, and again, obviously he's dysfunctional and maladaptive, we've kind of established that, but like community for, for Nagel, the eunuch, like what does that look like for him, if at all? Well, he he does establish a couple of meaningful relationships. Um, for example, there the head of the harem is an older woman by the name of Madame Grape, and she's in her seventies and she runs the harem. And she befriends uh, Nurgle, takes on a kind of grand, grand motherly role, and gives him uh, gives him care and love and advice. And he gets a tremendous amount from her. That, that kind of he gets kind of maternal affection from her, which is which is very very important. I, w I was fortunate enough. My mother was a, a very good mother, but I had this fantastic grandmother. Right? You know, my mother had a bunch of kids, and she was stressed out, and didn't always have time for uh, her for me. But my grandmother was always there, and I put a lot of that kind of relationship into the novel. The importance to have, a, you know, a loving kind of older female presence, and so uh, he he does that. So that's one example. Then he also has his pals uh, in the in the in, in, amongst the other amongst his fellow eunuchs, right? And this is to kind of your point, to kind of find find a positive community of, of, you know, find your band of brothers, right? Your pals, where you can, you know, uh, kind of support each other and then kind of even laugh about your situation, right? Not, don't take yourself so seriously. So he has a couple of fellow eunuchs that are in the same situation and they bond, so to speak. And that kind of relationship is there. And I also explore in the novel, his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, the king. He becomes... Uh, the, the king befriends him and kind of takes him into his inner circle. And of course, that relationship is very fraught and complicated because it's essentially a master-slave relationship. And the king is also kind of a lunatic. But Nurgle comes to love him. And so that's one of the things that I explore in the novel that is that even though he has been wounded and, and castrated uh, as a young person, he's still capable of uh, of love. He still desires human connection. And that, as as dysfunctionally as he, as he is, that kind of redeems him uh, in the end, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful um, takeaway as well is like regardless of the wounding physically, psychologically, spiritually or otherwise, like there's still um, light at the end of the tunnel, right? There's still opportunity for love. There's still opportunity for connection, still opportunity for friendship. Uh, and, you know, to the point that I was making before about sex coaching, there's still opportunity for pleasure and there's still opportunity for, you know, sexual uh, expression as well. Um which maybe isn't necessarily uh, explored uh, uh, through through the eyes of the eunuch, I suppose, um, with the situation that he's in. Yeah, the, the thing that I've realized as I've gotten older is that love is very real, right? And it can come in a lot of different, it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. 
right, with uh, your siblings, your family, your friends, people at work. In fact, love is, you know, this is a, this is a platitude and it's a cliche, cliche alert, but yeah, love is really the most important thing in human life. And, 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 and it's something I was cynical about as a younger man, of course, because it was such a cliche, but as you get older, you realize, oh, your relationships with other people are the, is the thing that's going to last, you know, work's going to come and go, right? Um, it's not always reliable, but, but relationships and friendships, if you, if you're careful enough to nurture them, they can last a life lifetime and can become more meaningful with each decade yeah and you'll probably know this but there but I, and i'm going to butcher it because i can't remember but the the different types of love from the greek words for them like storge philia um erotic like eros yeah i'm, I'm curious do you, do you know the rest of them well yeah i think there's essentially three eros right physical love uh sexual love lust uh there's philos which is uh you know it's, it's friendship but it's also it can be love of learning it can be love of uh, music. It can be love of sports, right? It's that kind of care, right? That you have that connection, that attraction to. That's that's not sexual, but it's still love. And of course, then there's the, in the in the New Testament, Koine Greek. There's agape, which is more of a selfless love, right? Uh, a love that transcends um, self-interest. It's non-transactional, right? It'd be the love that you would have, hopefully, for your child. Right, uh, the love of a, for God if you are religious. Right, the love of country, uh, the love of nature. Right, yeah. So it's imp it's important to try to experience all aspects of of, uh, of that kind of deeper connection. Right, because they're all about connection. Right. Yeah, the multifacetedness of love i think is is like really beautiful yeah we desire we desire to be connected right there i think we feel incomplete right we feel that there's a lack i think that's just kind of inherent in our being right we're limited uh individuals we need to be part of something or someone else right and uh those three words are different ways to be connected to something else whether it's sexual romantic or you know, uh, you know love of uh you, know, you might love soccer for example right philos right then agape, of course. Right? I'm, I'm wondering what do you hope are the biggest takeaways that people have from reading your novel? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, one is pleasure. I want them to enjoy it. Uh, you know, uh, and I want them to enjoy it on, on every level. I hope they like the character. I hope they like the language the novel was written in. Um, I, 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 I hope that the novel is a complex and nuanced portrait of a world and individuals in it that they can recognize uh, just kind of how complicated our, our human beings are, but but also how kind of complicated we are as sexual beings and as uh, uh, beings who desire, uh, be, beings who love, right? That 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 can come in many different uh, that that love and that connection can come in many different ways, and it can often surprise you. In the end of the novel, though, the most loving connection the uh, the, the eunuch has. Uh, as a slave is with his master, Nebuchadnezzar, and really my um, editor and publisher, when he was done uh, editing and working on the novel, says, really, this this novel is a love story, but it's really between Nurgle and the king. That's the, that's where the love story is. And as, 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 as dysfunctional as that relationship is, it, 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 there's something there. So I don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for speaking to that. I'm probably not the right person to ask you relevant questions about you know, a master and slave relationship. Um, that being well outside of my wheelhouse and, and yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to like, just be mindful of our time together as well on this conversation and, and wanted to give you a, you know, a, a final say about, you know, anything else that you feel like is really, you know, any other takeaways that you have from like, you know, what we're speaking about today or anything, any other insights you feel relevant to share based on like, you know, the theme of like masculinity and sexuality and pleasure. And I'm curious if there's anything else that you, you feel is left unsaid. I don't know if I have any kind of final statement other than um, the one thing about my narrator, Nurgle, is that he does kind of, you know, he was dealt a rather bad hand in life and he makes the best of it by sublimating a lot of his desires into this creative act. He tells his own story and he tells it, I think, uh, uh, artfully, right? Um, and in the end, he's left with that right? That, that this kind of testimony of his life. Um, and uh, in that way, the novel is about the power 
of telling our own stories, of creating a work of art out of our own lives. Life is, 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 is about so much more than just power, status, and a gratification or desire. Uh, you know, we can make something beautiful that has nothing to do with those three uh, categories. And so I think that'd be my, you know, my closing remark. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, about the, the the novel with me and for you know describing not only the kind of process that you went through, but also you know touching on a bunch of really interesting themes. Uh, it's a great great um, you know book, and I, I highly recommend it. It was it was really interesting to to read and kind of put my sex coach hat on whilst I was reading it as well. Uh, so it made me really think about some things. Yeah, no, that's great, Cam. I've enjoyed it. And I'll just say one last thing. I want to give a shout out to my publisher, uh, Paul Thomas, at the Gabrohead uh, Press. And the unit can be found at the Gabrohead uh, Press uh, online. It can also be, it's also available on Amazon. Yeah, fantastic, man. Thank you very much. I'll, that should hopefully be in the show notes and also at the beginning of the podcast as well. So if people are across it, then they can go and find it. And I'll, I'll definitely do a shout out as well. Um, but yeah, just thanking you for your time, mate. I know you're a busy man and especially at the, this time of the year as well. I, I'm just grateful that you spent the time having a chat with me. Hey, Cam, it was really great meeting you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and thanks for having me on your show, on your podcast. It was, this has been a real pleasure. No, no worries at all, mate. I'll, I'll let you go and um, I'll talk to you again, hopefully relatively soon. Okay, Cam, stay in touch. Thanks See you, again. mate. Bye. See you later.